Okay, well, uh, so excited uh, to rejoin a discussion with Craig and Dennis from Deaf Crocodile. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, you know, we've been, y'all y'all's were the first, y'all, uh, y'all said yes to us first. And so thank you for that again. Um, gave us some confidence that we could actually go out to the community uh, of people that are producing Blu-rays and, and ask for, for time. So thank you for that. Um, and I've been meaning to reach back out. Zach and I have been, become a big fan of y'all's label, but kind of the timing of this was this Kickstarter that y'all, that y'all kicked off, I guess, so to speak. Um, and so first of all, congratulations. It funded in three days. Is that right? Four days? Yeah, a little under four days, yeah. Under four, four days. days. Um, yeah, we were really lucky. I'd say Craig, Craig really took the lead on the, uh, the Kickstarter campaign and uh did a phenomenal job and and i think also because turns out there were a lot of people out there waiting a long time to see solomon king uh restored and i should i should say that that we we reached our our funding goal and as i put it in the update in the kickstarter you know we reached our first goal um because kickstarter being a an all or nothing venture i set the bar as low as i thought was reasonable um but we could definitely use more than that <laughs> than that level to, to even break get get to the break even point on, on solomon king so so keep pledging <laughs> well that's a perfect tie-in so i mean this is kind of you, you said something interesting that i wanted to kind of dig into so you mentioned in the blurb about the this uh i guess you know this finding this film and, and deciding to go put it out that it's coming out either way. However, this gives y'all some, some extra money um, that you've already kind of invested into the project. And um, you, you phrase it in such a way of like, you know, don't worry about, I know there's some Kickstarters that don't make it or you don't know where the money goes, but like, this is all going basically to recoup some of the costs that y'all put in. Um, so a lot, there's a lot of projects where they, they set a goal and they reach the goal, but that goal wasn't enough for them to actually produce the product that they were pros- promising. And so then, people never get anything um that's not what this is we, we're you know we're almost done we've you know we've got dates set for release and it's it's happening even if we hadn't launched this kickstarter the kickstarter was just a way to try and recoup uh, all of the upfront expenses that it cost us to do it because we were determined we were this had to be released like it's too important it's too amazing it's, there's too much of a, a story behind the movie yeah it should be told so we're like this is happening so i thought well a kickstarter would be a good way to to try and help us recoup you know everything we've already put into it <laughs> well that, that's exactly kind of where i was going so the stretch goal is twenty five thousand. uh i checked this morning and i think you'll reach like 17 or it's kind of getting close on 18 already so obviously you know by the time this is coming out on the 15th of August. So you're going to have two weeks left in the month. Uh, we're recording on the 7th. So as of the 7th, it's about somewhere between 17 to 18,000. Um, but I hope that this reaches 100,000. And I hope anybody that's listening doesn't stop giving because this is kind of what I wanted to chat with you all about today. It's not like you and Dennis are just sitting there like Scrooge McDuck swinging through piles of gold from <laughs> no. Death Crocodile, right? <laughs> like this money is directly tied into finding future Solomon Kings, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so I thought it would be a good tie-in because I think if I look across, so uh, Unknown Man of Shang Degore, Delta Space Mission, Ilya Motometz, the Shah Ramokri films, and Sampo, those are the releases so far. 
And plus you have, I know more planned theatrically. Can you talk a little bit about, cause I know at least one or two of those are already kind of lost films that would not have come out without y'all's work, right? Well, Unknown Man of Shandigore was, was extremely obscure. I think it had a very brief release here in the US possibly um, for like two minutes back in the late sixties and then disappeared. And I read about it in a, a, a film encyclopedia many years ago and it just kind of stuck in the back of my brain. I, I have a, a list that I kind of keep there of films that I would love to track down. I think this is from my days as a, as a programmer with the American Cinematheque here because I could be really patient. You know, there were times when it would take me five, 10 years to find a print of a particular movie. Um, and in those cases, I would spend all that time, we would fly in this incredibly rare print. We would screen it usually one time and then we would ship it back to wherever it had come from. Wow. And eventually I got to thinking, hey, that's a lot of work for <laughs> relative. I mean, it was, you know, it would be a beautiful event and people would get to see this gorgeous 35 millimeter print on the big screen but then it would disappear back into a vault or an archive um, in some cases, like never to be seen again. So in the case of Unknown Sh uh, Man of Chandigore, we were really fortunate that we got in touch with the family of the filmmaker, Jean-Louis Roy, who sadly passed away just recently before we had reached out to his family, but his sons, Michael and Christian Roy were incredibly friendly and supportive in, in working with us, licensing us the rights to the film, and, um, and then put us in touch with the Cinematheque Suisse, who had done a 4K scan from the original 35 millimeter camera negative okay. um, and transferred the audio elements. And then Craig was able to work his restoration wizardry to really kind of up it a couple more notches so that it looks absolutely stunning and i have to say um you know we we've, we've both worked on a bunch of restoration and new releases together now including belladonna of sadness and funeral yeah. made of roses and private property and i and i think unknown man of shandigore maybe one of maybe the film that we were sort of most astonished by the finished product like just how gorgeous the cinematography and the visuals are in the film it really blew us both away. The black and white cinematography by Roger Bimpage and Jean-Louis Roy's um, sense of, of framing and staging is yeah. just amazing. Yeah, some of the, the, the shots and the, the compositions and it's even in that, that old trailer that was included on the disc, uh, they refer to it as a comic book. Um, and there are, there are definitely shots and, and, and and layouts that that really do kind of blend that kind of feel of a, of a comic book feel to it um visually and then on top of that layer is the just the incredibly gorgeous black and white cinematography um and then the spy movie and then the spoof of a spy movie it's just got like all yeah. these layers that are it's all there um but none of it is like in your face it's all kind of subtle um, other than the visuals the visuals are just stunning <laughs> do you i mean but th that's got to be an exciting moment right because it, you're just sitting there restoring it and all of a sudden it's almost like you're uncovering this it's almost like a like an indiana jones type moment or something right where it's like your work well, is yeah, I, 
I, I keep saying whenever, whenever we talk about this, this particular film is that Dennis had told me about it. And he, he was very just kind of, there's this Swiss film, you should check it out. Um, and so I, I, he gave me a link and I, I watched it and I like immediately called him and I was like, this is incredible. I'm like, yeah. like you, you did not sell this. I didn't, like, I didn't <laughs> want to, I didn't want to, I didn't want to oversell it too much. I fell in love with it immediately. Yeah. I was like, this is incredible. Yeah. Well, in Delta Space Mission, which was the second Blu-ray that we put out is another, you know, film that was, was, very hard to find, very obscure, certainly over here in North America. Um, and we were really lucky that that after, it actually took about five years all in of, of reaching out and then we'd start a communication and then it would kind of fall into limbo and we try and start it up again with um, the CNC, the Romanian Film Center and the Romanian yeah. Film Archive. And eventually, you know, we were able to get in touch with the right people and they were incredibly cooperative and they had done a new 4K scan recently off of the camera negative. And again, Craig was able to, to work his wizardry on that. As part of that, one of the, for us, one of the best things is that we got to become really good friends with, with one of the two co-directors, Colleen Kazan, who lives in Bucharest, Romania. And it's just amazing, so sweet, incredible animator and director. Uh, his co-director, Murchatoya, died in the 1990s a while ago. But Colin has been able to advise us and talk with us. Um, and early next year, we're going to be releasing the second film that they did together, which is another insane animated mid-80s sci-fi epic, which wow. is even more <laughs> freakadelic and far think, out. Than Delta Space who likes Delta even Space more obscure. Yeah, it's I like think more off the radar. <laughs> Wow! Anybody that liked Delta Space Mission, I think they're going to like this this second one even more. Yeah, I think if you go on IMDb, it doesn't even list this second feature. No yeah. shit. Yeah, they only did two, unfortunately, um, and then there was a regime uh, regime change at uh, Anima Film, which was the main Romanian animation producer at the time, and they weren't able to continue. They actually. <laughs> they kind of skirted the rules to get both of these features made. They produced them under the guide. They, were, they weren't able to make features, but they could make short films. Okay. So they just made a series of short films that were always meant to be oh. connected together as a feature. But they said, oh, no, no, we're just doing these short, these little seven, eight minute shorts. So both Delta Space Mission and the, the sort of semi-sequel, it's not a direct sequel, doesn't involve the same characters, but they're both sci-fi animated. In this case, the second film is this amazing mashup of, of the Empire Strikes Back, Tarzan and Alien. <laughs> so and you can see big, when you watch it, you will immediately see big chunks of, of Empire and Dagobah and Luke wow. Skywalker like characters, but then you'll also see crazy elements from early 1980s Japanese animated TV. And it's just, and this incredible um, kind of space prog, Eastern European synth score. And it's that fusion, you know, we've talked about that before. Um, it, it's looking at 
kind of popular Western narratives, but then interpreted through the lens of a different culture. So one of my favorite filmmakers is Jean-Pierre Melville, the great French crime director of the late 50s, 60s, and 70s, mm-hmm. who did Bob Le Flambeur and Le Samurai and many others. And he clearly, he loved um, classic American noir. Yeah. But he filtered it through a very French sensibility. And in the same way, when you watch these two films by, by Colin and Merchatoya, you're seeing elements of, of popular mainstream Western sci-fi, but filtered through a behind the Iron Curtain early 80s Romanian sensibility. And it's that fusion of the two that for me results in something incredibly strange and wonderful. Well, so, find, uh, uh, good. someone from another country looking at someone else's country, it's always more interesting because they see it differently. Yeah. They, they notice that you're gonna notice the things that, that, that a native takes for granted but is in, but is interesting to them. So it, it's always it, it's even just even as simple as cinematography. Like whoever's doing the cinematography, like getting someone who's not from that country. Um, I like they they just see things slightly differently, and it makes it more interesting. It's funny. I, I just saw. I just finished going through all of Wong Kar Wai's films, and the second to last one he made is called My Blueberry Nights. Have either one of y'all seen that? I've no, seen. I've actually, that's one of one car wise I've never seen. Yeah, I, it, I mean, it's, it got kind of ragged on when it first came out and I think people were expecting it to be a rom-com. So it's like this kind of American rom-com is told through the eyes of Wong Kar Wai, who's obviously that's not his you know, style. Um, and he was trying to reflect on his kind of version of Americana. And I think it's, it's, uh, it's a bit awkward uh, at first. And so I think there's elements, there's times like that where maybe it's not done as well, uh, but it certainly has an intrigue because it's like almost like a, an alien perspective on Americana, you know, so there's, there's certainly elements of interest to it. Um, but then in, in what you're talking about with like Melville or whether it's some of this, like the, the Colleen movies or whatever, it's fat because when, they, you know, they're, they're almost like pulling elements of this culture that's coming from the States and making it their own. And I, I love it. That's one of my favorite things about the French new wave in general, I think. Well, well, uh, Sharam Mokri's Iranian films are another great example, like uh, Fish and Cat, which is his amazing two and a half hour single shot essay on American kind of slasher classic horror films of the 70s, like uh, um, uh, um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Friday the 13th, but filtered through an incredibly... um, beautiful and minimalist Iranian art house lens. And Sharam loves genre filmmaking, but he's like, I can't do that. What I can do is my version of it. It's, um, uh, would you guys like to hear a Werner Herzog story? Always. Okay. (laughs) All right, so here's a so years ago, I, I, I wrote and co-produced an anthology horror film called Trapped Ashes that eventually came out with episodes by Joe Dante and Monty Hellman and um, uh, Sean Cunningham and um, Ken Russell. So I was trying to get Werner to, to direct one of the episodes that was going to shoot in Japan. And I knew him from my job at the Cinematheque. And I sent him the script and he 
asked if we could have coffee in Hollywood at the corner of uh, of uh, Highland and uh, and Franklin, his little strip mall next to a sushi place and like uh, a supermarket and there's a Starbucks. So we sit down and he says, Dennis, I have read your script and it is a very good script. For a horror film, it is the kind of horror film that the audience will like, but it is not so horror film that I would make. If I were going to make a horror film, it would be about a little boy and he has a little red ball. <laughs> he loves this red ball more than anything in the world. It is his closest friend, his prized possession. It is his universe. And he is bouncing this ball all day long. And one day it goes up and it gets stuck in a tree and the ball will not come down. And the little boy is below, he's crying. He's saying, ball, come down to me. And the ball will not come down. Do you see the horror in this? <laughs> and as he's telling it to me, I'm like, yes, yes, this is, this is, this is the, the most incredible horror film I've ever heard. And I want to make your... <laughs> Right. Well, he, I wish Klaus Kinski could have just played the little boy and it would be perfect. <laughs> or the red ball. Or the, or the ball. Oh, yeah, just... <laughs> or all three of them. <laughs> and I, I was so captivated. I was like, Werner, yes, let's make your, your horror film about the little boy and the red ball and the tree. So, so we didn't get to work with him, but I, I did get this amazing explanation of what Werner's idea of horror. And of course, he's, you know, he, he did make a beautiful adaptation of Nosferatu yeah, uh, Klaus Kinski and Isabella Johnny, which is amazing. But, but clearly, you know, as with, with Sharam, they love these genre um, tropes, but they have to kind of do it their own way, which is why I sort of say like Sharam's films, Fishing Cat is a horror film the way that Tarkovsky's Stalker is a science fiction film. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, Stalker is a science fiction film, one of the greatest ever made. But if you watch it expecting <laughs> a typical sci-fi film, you're going to be pretty mystified. Yeah. You know, that was uh, when I watched Fishing Cat, I guess it's been about two or three weeks now, whenever it came out. I didn't even really notice it was one shot till like halfway through. I don't know why it just finally clicked with me. And I was like, for once there's this, it's a one shot film that I don't feel is masturbatory <laughs> in the sense, because it's not, he, he, he does. I don't know. I liked how much he didn't draw attention to a lot of those like gimmicky. I, I hate to use the word gimmicky, but in a way gimmicky elements, like, you know, usually in a slasher film, if I'm watching like a bad Friday 13th film, I'm looking for the kills and there's not a on scene kill in the film and you're still like enamored with it. And I just think that's really cool. You know, he was he loves playing with the concept of time and if you put a cut in there if it, it, it's you know it's like you've got a mobius strip well if you cut it it's no longer a mobius strip like mm -hmm. you can't you can't put a cut in there <laughs> oh that's a that's a cool idea it's a cool explanation of it and it's um, just neat that everything is like you still get flashbacks and flash forwards and different perspectives within that one shot. And I think that's just- Within the same timeline, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the, that the- He's the only, like, that you could show the past, the present, and the future without ever cutting or dissolving, you know, is, it's genius. Yeah. <laughs> it really is. When I saw, well, the first of his films we saw was Careless Crime, which won the Best Screenplay Award at Venice in 2020. And 
Craig and I were both so blown away. Craig had a great description. It's like you're playing chess on three levels on a, uh, a, a you know, a, a glass board. And if you look at it from the side, you can see three separate games. But if you look at it from above, it looks like all of the pieces are on the board at the same time. Oh. That's careless crime. The events of the late 70s and the tragedy of the Cinema Rex fire, which is one of the worst acts of terrorism ever. Right. Um, and the events of the present all seem to be happening in the same time space. And that yeah. is so mind blowing. And, and literally afterwards we were like, did he make any other films? And then we, it's the only filmmaker. <laughs> we were like, all right, we got to corner the market and show Yeah, that's literally, that's literally what happened. We saw Careless Crime and we immediately were like, what else has he done? And then we saw the list and we contacted them and we're like, we want all of his films. <laughs> <laughs> Everything, please. And it's the only, it's the only uh, multi-film box set that we've attempted so far, and I think it, it's because we realized you know, none of his films had come out in, in the US on home video or, or digital to date. And we realized like, you know, if we don't do it and if we don't do it right and, and put them all together, because I think people really should have a chance to see Fish and Cat and Invasion and Careless Crime and Ashcan um, and realize what a, what a, a really wonderful and significant director Sharm is like, you know, they may not get released here. So we were like, okay, get <laughs> the license and put them all in a box set. Do you, do you, the, the, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but just in case you know this story, because y'all are, y'all are both pretty good at stories. The, uh, Kuristami at the end of the, the film, is it 24 frames? Is that right? Um, cool. Where he just lists the name Shafran Mokri. Yeah. Y'all know any, anything behind that by chance? Have you ever heard anything about what happened? I don't personally, but I'm sure Sharam does. And I know that they were friends. And the way I interpreted it is that it was it was uh, Kiristami's homage or or basically saying this is where the future direction yeah. of, you know. That's uh, it's almost like a passing of the baton, right? Yeah, or a little a little sign with an arrow that points. Okay, this way, you know, Sharam, this way. So, it's a hell of a tribute. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, as a young director, it's imagine seeing that. That's uh, doesn't get much better than that. I know there's re recent news about Kirsami, but even that, just from a filmmaking perspective and and from a reputation perspective, that's a uh, young filmmaker. You can't do much better than that. Um, well, so. Okay, so this is my this is my point that y'all are doing such a good job of, uh, of of this overall perspective that I have on Deaf Crocodile, which obviously is an extension of the, of your personalities. And I'm just curious, you know, uh, it. I, I want to explain how I view Deaf Crocodile and just have you all react to it and see if you agree and and just kind of you know my perception so far, speaking with y'all over a year ago and then now seeing what you've actually released on home video, is that you're you're using this as almost like you know, you both have these individual, very tenured uh, experience in film, uh, whether it's on the programming side or on the restoration side or technical side or just across the board. And you have so many, uh, uh, you know, you have this opportunity through Deaf Crocodile to take all these individual kind of stories and, and 
and, and lost films like Dennis, you said you have this list in your head and Craig, I'm sure you have your own version of this. Like you have an opportunity to sort of use this as like a playground and, and an opportunity to have, help the world see these films that you know, need to be seen for one way or the other, whether they're lost or whether they're just cool films that are obscure in North America. Um, and it's truly a global company like Switzerland, Romania, uh, I guess USSR, but really Ukraine, right? That's what Ilya is, the whole story is about Kiev, right? Well, so 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 Ilya Muromets was was produced, you know, during the the days of the Soviet Union, USSR. But Ilya Muromets is a legendary hero of the Kievan Rus, which was the precursor to modern day Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia. And of course, the irony is that one of the the um, justifications for the the horrific invasion of Ukraine recently has been a return to uh, the the mythical Rus, which it, which is the the Kievan Rus, this concept of a of a united Mother Russia, and the and film that was made with air quotes around it. <laughs> yeah. So and when the film was made, most of the action is set in in what is now Ukraine and in and, and Kiev, in, in Kiev. And in the film, it's the invading Tugars who are trying to, to decimate and, you know, conquer the embattled uh, uh, Russians, pre-Ukrainians. But when you watch it now, it's hard not to, you know, look at it and say, oh, the, the Tugars are like Russia and totally. Ilya and his fellow countrymen are like the embattled Ukrainians. So that clearly was not the intent of the film when it was made, but it is really interesting that, you know, a narrative will remain fixed, but our interpretations of it can change radically over the years and and you know and, and Patushko who's one of my favorite filmmakers was first and foremost a great epic fantasy mm -hmm. director but just because something is a great fantasy doesn't mean it can't have real world political implications sure um Sampo which is the second of his two films is also a fascinating instance of um kind of Kind of again, what we were talking about before, which it, which is the um, the intermingling of of two cultures. Sampo is based on the Kalevala, which is one of the great national Finnish epics, um, and so it's very famous. Even even to this day, you know, it's it's adapted in film, TV, graphic novels. We included several pages from a, a graphic novel adaptation that was done recently in Finland to show that it's still a, a you know, a narrative that um, is is being reinterpreted in Finnish culture. So this was co-production between between the Soviet Union and and Finland. And when you watch it, it's a very Finnish film, but much of it was shot on sound stages in the Soviet Union by one of the Soviet Union's you know sort of greatest fantasy filmmakers. So again, it is this really fascinating intermingling of, of cultural narratives. Yeah. Uh, I love Sampo. Sampo is one of 
my favorite films, also been one of the hardest Petrushka films to see in its proper form for many years. We were really lucky in the case of, so for Ilya Muramis, we worked with, with Moss Film, which is the largest, longest running um, uh, studio and archive of films in Russia for Sampo, we worked with Kavi, which is the National Audiovisual Institute of Finland. And they had done a 4K scan and restoration from the original camera negative of the Finnish version of the film. So it was shot in four different versions. There was a CinemaScope Finnish version and a 137 to one flat version. Okay. And then it was also shot in Russian language CinemaScope and flat. And ironically, the version that most people know here, which is uh, as the day the earth froze, they licensed from what I understand, the flat Russian version, right? Mm. And that's the one that was cut up and redubbed as the day the earth froze. So, so you know, all those, what appeared to be pan and scan actually were, it was, it was the 137. So you weren't seeing that gorgeous, cinemascope um you know frame and vistas and i have to say it's really breathtaking you know when we got the the 4k files for the first time and craig posted a private link for me i was just like blown away what, that, how beautiful it know, is all films are beautiful people talk about um uh what's the english name the sword and the dragon Right, being on, on Mystery Science Theater or whatever, you know, I, I didn't actually know that I was reading up about that. But, you know, I think if you, just that opening shot of Ilya Modemets alone, where you see this giant walking on screen and like the, I guess the travelers, the minstrels kind of there in the mountain, uh, it the, the way he played with perspective and the way he, you know, unbelievable, right? And the color kind of palette that he used, uh, like it was like a, a matte painting almost in the background and then that perspective was so beautiful i was thinking like yeah i mean there's a there's a few goofy moments in the movie like when they keep calling him a young man when he's you know he's obviously not like like a super young man like there's some silliness there but like there was nothing in that movie that i felt like if they i don't think that would have ever made it to mystery science theater is my point if they had seen that version of it as opposed to the highly cut up anglicized version that was kind of being circulated right so seeing it in the pure form is so so important i guess or the way that it was originally made. Well, and we were really uh, lucky that um, Mike Nelson agreed to do a, an hour-long interview with us through um, uh, through a connection that Bob Fingerman, who is a wonderful uh, comics artist and graphic novelist and novelist, uh, knows Mike, who was the head writer and and he was the the lead actor on Mystery Science Theater Three Thousand for a number of years, and uh, so we did a a Zoom Q&A with him during the pandemic about his career um, and then talking about the day the earth froze and and the sword and the dragon uh, mystery science theater episodes, which I have to say, I, I think are brilliant. They're incredibly funny and I love watching them. And as much as I love the original films, I can also watch those and laugh my butt off. Um, interestingly, somebody asked, just over the weekend um, in response to a post about Sampo, if, if the dubbed cut up versions of both films were ever going to be released on Blu-ray. And 
I I hope so. I think that's a bridge. Too, <laughs> that's a bridge too far for us. Mm-hmm. It was a major undertaking to get uh, Ilya Muromets, um, uh, which I, you know, and I, I have to say, we were in discussions with Moss Film and had licensed the film long before the war broke out in Ukraine, and they had sent us the materials and everything. Okay. And, we actually had a discussion internally about whether we should we should wait. And our uh, our partners with Seagull Films um, were also uh, uh, very adamant that we should move ahead with the release of the film. Now that this was, you know, a work of fantasy, a work of art from several generations ago, but it doesn't actually have political implications now. And that that ironically, this is actually a very good good time to release an epic film about the embattled residents of Kiev who are struggling against uh, the invading hordes. And I was like, okay, let's see, we'll go ahead with it. So, yeah. Did we, we briefly discussed if it was possible, would we want to put the Mystery Science Theater versions as like a bonus? on the blu-ray and partly for it would just probably just be financially not make sense but we also wanted the the proper widescreen you know beautiful uncut versions to stand on their own and you can see the funny stuff somewhere else but this was this was to showcase this is what they really are we all have had a couple of discussions like that, right? Like I think it was on the Ashkan film where there's a warning ahead of the film that says there's a snippet from, from 2001 that had to be removed, but you had to engage the filmmakers. You, you kind of made it a point to say, don't worry, we were working with them. You know, it's not just a decision we made, but- Yeah, but that, right, was, that was really minor. Like it, it, it's, I don't even know why it was in there. It was, he must've just been like, oh, I want to throw a homage to, to Kubrick in my film because it doesn't have really any bearing on the plot. It's like 10, 15 seconds. Mm. This guy walks in a room and these people are watching 2001 and then he leaves. <laughs> and we're like, I don't think we can do that. <laughs> well, we, we, asked, we asked Sharam first and then he said, well, you should talk to the the producer and distributor in Iran. And so we sent an email saying, did you guys actually license that footage from 2001? And they were like, no way. No, we just put it in there. And we said, okay, well, uh, you know, we could do one of two things. We, you know, we can try for years to get permission from the Kubrick estate and uh, Warner Brothers to include it. And even if they agreed the licensing for, you know, a 20 or 30 second clip of the film would be so outrageous, I'm sure. Or with your permission, we can cut it out. And Charm said, it's more important, I think, that people see the entire film. And if, you know, so with his permission, we snipped that very short scene out. So but, I hate to do that. I mean, honestly, I, you know, I, you know, that, that, kind of is a is a little knife in the gut for me as a as a film lover i'm always trying to put more footage back in or find right. longer versions but in this case it was either like okay either we take out that very short 
scene which didn't impact the story or we had to drop Ashcan from the disc. Like that was like either that little scene goes or the entire film would have to be left off. And again, like like that's his first film. Um, And I think that's more common with first time filmmakers is they don't really think about licensing issues with music or clips from other movies. And one of the first films I ever worked on uh, restoration work on was a a, a 1960s surfing film. and I'm working on it and I'm working, I don't usually, I don't usually do much with audio. I'm mostly doing, handling picture restoration. And so I'm working on this, I'm working on this. And I was looking for some reference. Uh, I wanted to, typically if I'm working on something, I want, I want to see the film itself uh, in total, um, just to get a kind of sense of the film. And so I'm watching it and he cuts to this scene of the, you know, people just driving in their like VW van down along the beach shoreline and Strawberry Fields Forever is playing. Okay. <laughs> and so I, I like, I emailed him. I was like, Greg, do, do you, you realize you've got Beatles music in that movie, right? And he's like, I do. <laughs> he's like, oh, that's not going to work. <laughs> 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 yeah, music is the yeah, yeah. music is the killer. I think it it was one of the reasons why Tulane Blacktop, one of my favorite films uh, by one of my favorite directors, was was unseen for many years because the music had not been cleared for a home video release. So, well, the, I mean, not to go too far in this, but I remember uh, I've been collecting DVDs for a while now, and the the first season of Beavis and Butthead had to be taken off the shelves initially because of music clearance. And then uh, there was another big one. Oh, The Wonder Years. That wasn't released for years because they couldn't get the rights figured out for the music, right? Um, but there was the, a, WK, was... I think WKRP, aren't there, weren't there big? Because they used a lot of contemporary music. And then I think when they, if I'm not mistaken, somebody may correct me on this, but I think they had to like pull the original tracks and substitute other music or they just couldn't release those episodes at all because it had so much music that was never licensed for home video use. Yeah, I guess because a lot of times the even if they do license it, they're not thinking way in the future. Right. So, all right, well, and so they, they get the license in, you know, the, the most affordable way possible. It's like, all right, we've got it licensed for theatrical, you know, and if it was something older, it was before there was like a whole home video thing. So it's like, oh, you didn't license it for all that. It's a different different tier kind of. Yeah. But this is like, so this is kind of all tied into one of the big questions I guess I have for you all though. So um, what, so you, you mentioned some stats that are just staggering to me from a, from a persistent standpoint, right? So you've said it take, this film took five years, this film could take five to seven years. So how does that work as y'all are trying to put together a physical media company, right? Because I mean, like, you know, so you have, I'm sure you're going to have another release planned in between now and, um, um, uh, sorry, I'm just drawing a blank Solomon King, if that's coming out later in the year, yeah. right? So are there any more projects, and I don't know how much you can talk about openly, but are there any more projects you have coming up where you had to be building this up for, you know, two, three, five years? No, after Solomon King, it's going to be five years before the next one. We, <laughs> That's how you do it. <laughs> no, no, funny enough, we are in a, a very unusual position for us. Uh, we, actually, we actually have a backlog of films. <laughs> that so we're we're in a bit of a log jam. You know, and, I can only restore 
so fast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, because Solomon King has required so much of Craig's time and, and our colorist, Tyler Fagerstrom to, to get it looking as, as good as it can. We were hoping to put out the, the sort of semi-sequel to um, Delta Space Mission um, in October. And uh, Craig is like, you know, I'm not going to put something out that, that isn't up to, to his, you know, incredibly high standards. Thank God. So we're, we're pushing that to early 2023 so that he'll have more time to work on it after Solomon King is finished. But um, Solomon King, you know, it was a, truly lost film in the sense that for the last 45 years or so all that anyone could see of it was like a, a 30 to 60 second um tv uh ad okay. uh, that had been posted on youtube and i came across a copy of the soundtrack album a couple of years ago at record surplus here in la which is one of my favorite um, vintage record stores at Santa Monica and Sentinella. Encourage everybody to, to go there if you're in LA and keep them in business. Um, I, I listened to it. From me. <laughs> I listened to it, and and it's amazing, amazing. All these incredible, you know, it, it's from that early '70s sort of Curtis Mayfield um, Shaft era of of kind of really beautiful driving soul funk. So I fell in love with the album, and it was all artists that I'd never heard of before. And so I said, well, you know, I'd like to watch the film. And I started digging around for it. And all the references were like lost film, lost film, hasn't been seen in 40 years, lost film. And so I said, well, you know, <laughs> this is kind of naive, but what we do is find lost film. So I talked to Craig and I said, hey, let's, let's find this one. <laughs> all you had to do, you sent me the link. There was a YouTube link where so you could hear the, the theme music. And I was like, oh, yeah, I was like, I don't even know what the movie is. But if that's the theme music, we need to find this. <laughs> There's a project there. Okay. So we we started uh, trying to find, well, first Sal Watts to see if he was still alive. And as it turns out, he he sadly passed away in 2003. So we found an obituary that for a um, Sal Watts, but it didn't list any of his incredible work in media. So, so Sal had two record labels. Uh, he wrote, co-directed, produced, and starred in Solomon King. He executive produced a local Oakland um, dance and music program called Soul Is slash the Jay Payton Show, which is an incredible showcase for local yeah. um, dance troops as well as local musicians. He owned restaurants. He had a string of incredible um uh fashion stores mr sal's fashions and so many of the clothes in solomon king were direct from his store but didn't mention any of that apart from mr sal's fashions so we didn't even know that that was the sal watts we were looking yeah you did an incredible like you, you could be a detective um dennis because because it wasn't in fact the obituary wasn't sal watts it was selma, I think it's watts. selma. yeah selma, selma which was his given his name. real name yeah, some wow. you still so, figured so it out. <laughs> we kept we kept hitting dead ends, and then um, we were finally able to connect with 
his wife is widow Belinda Burton Watts, and that's when things really took off because she manages his estate and and is the rights holder for Solomon King, which Sal produced. And she had what she thought was the camera negative in her closet for 20, 25 years since a lab called CFI had closed down um, in LA. And it turned out to be the 35 millimeter soundtrack elements only, which is good to have. So the, the film will have great sound, but it sent us back to square one in terms of finding, I mean, you can't restore a film with just the soundtrack. Yeah. So we reached out to archives all across the US, private collectors, people who were in that world. Um, and I think a couple of them had the same trailer. They're like, yeah, I have a trailer for Solomon King. I've never seen a print. And then UCLA Film and TV Archive came back to us and said, yeah, we have an original release print complete, but it's badly faded. It's like purple pink. And so they were very generous in giving us access to the film. We did a 10 second scan test and gave it to Craig and our colorist Tyler. And then they came back and the change was just miraculous. Okay. Uh, and that's what really convinced us that we were going to be able to restore, you know, close to 95% of the original color oh, from this faded purple pink print. As far as we know, the original negative was lost years ago. Um, and, you know, the, the film will now be saved. God willing, it'll never disappear again. Belinda was good enough to put her soundtrack elements on deposit with UCLA. So they're now stored with the print. And when we're finished with the digital restoration, we're going to put a copy of that on deposit with UCLA. So they will have all of those materials in one place. So it'll never go away again. So, so to go back to what you said earlier about the Kickstarter, like we were determined like we made the commitment a long time ago, the train had left the station that come hell or high water, we were going to restore and preserve Solomon King because if we didn't do it now, it might truly be lost forever. Um, so we had already said, you know, even, even if we go really far into the hole on this film, it, you know, to, to preserve that, moment in Oakland, black music, fashion, film, culture, even the, the, the uh, architecture. Um, a lot of the, the film was shot either in, in um, Sal and Belinda's home or in businesses that he owned, restaurants he owned, places that are now long gone. I mean, Oakland has changed so radically uh, since Solomon King was shot there. So just as a picture of this long gone um moment in in oakland black culture we were like you got to preserve this movie so that was a big thing for us and i know that <laughs> may not sound like the smartest financial decision but um we are hoping that the film will do well we'll certainly make money for for belinda and her family and the estate and for us we're hoping that we can license it there's been interest from distributors overseas um, and that Sal's work will finally get the attention it deserves because we were really determined to, to 
tell his and Belinda's story and the fact that she's here to speak for the two of them. They have an incredible life history, both of them. Yeah, um, we, honestly, we honestly were hoping that the exposure that this restoration and release brings to not only the film, but, but Sal's story, um, really hope uh, a documentary filmmaker is as fascinated as we are because Sal's story deserves a, a feature documentary on its own. That's awesome. So to um, bring it back to the Kickstarter uh, for just a second. So I was curious about this because with y'all's um, newest update, it's regarding getting everyone a copy of the soundtrack and so you can hear it. I think, uh, make sure I have this right. So once you reach the $25,000, it'll be included with every backer. So I, I think, I guess my question there is, you know, when you have this idea of what's going to be a reward tier and what is kind of, I guess in this case, it's a little bit of a carrot to try to get to those stretch goals and everything else. What gives you that, like what makes you decide on which way you go with that instead of going that direction rather than say, oh, well, we'll include a CD or we'll include a, um, an MP4 copy or something like that for that amount. Uh, you mean for the, the soundtrack or the, the feature? It was the, the newest one's the soundtrack, right? That's what the stretch right. goal is for? Yeah. yeah because well, well, one of the things is that the stretch goal, it has to be like I can't, uh, you can't add like a, a new product. Like if you reach this amount, then we'll add like you can buy. That would have to be like its own new new Kickstarter. Mm, okay. I figured a, a, you know, like an MP3 download of the soundtrack would be, you know, that would get that would be able to when we raise the extra money, that'll give us the the money we need to digitize it to remaster it. Um, and then we'll have MT3s available and we'll also have a master that hopefully maybe we can do something bigger with later. Okay, cool, cool. But it, that would have to be a different Kickstarter because it's a different product. Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. I was just curious if there was a, if there was like a logistical reason uh, to decide whether something should be a reward or something should be a stretch goal. So that makes sense. Uh, yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take... And another fairly significant chunk of money to to digitize the materials, clean them up, and and prepare the the audio. So we have the thirty five millimeter OST, the soundtrack elements, but those have dialogue and sound effects mixed in. Mm -hmm. um, and um, it, as far as we know, the original master tapes for the soundtrack seem to be lost, like the camera negative. It was recorded at a studio here in Los Angeles. Um, that studio no longer exists under that name, but I think the building is there and the family of one of the, the men that ran the studio sort of transformed it into a nonprofit music institute. I'm not sure if they're actually still open or not. We did reach out to them about six months ago and asked, hey, is there any chance you have any old tapes lying around in the back room that they say Solomon King on them and we haven't heard anything and I think that was sort of wishful wishful thinking that it might still be there uh nearly almost 50 years later but as far as as we know the original master tapes for for 
the soundtrack album are probably gone along with um unfortunately uh the master tapes for several other 45s that sal had put out on his salwa label all of which seem to have some connection to solomon king like the b-side is like theme from action theme from solomon king so you know i mean i have to say you know he was really great at cross promotion so you know he uses all of the clothes from mr sal's fashions and solomon king and then he puts out the, the soundtrack and related 45s on his own label we we continually sort of say you know he he should have been oakland's answer to barry gordy Mm. He had that kind of uh, ambition, kind of entrepreneurial drive and talent. Um, and the fact that it all seems to have kind of fallen apart. And, and unfortunately, he wound up doing time in, in prison in Lompoc in the 80s on tax related charges, which is really sad. And when he got out, apparently he was never able to sort of regain um, the momentum that he had in the, in the early seventies. Um, and then he suffered a devastating stroke and was, was pretty in pretty bad shape. The last seven years of his life, he and Belinda had been a couple early on. So they were together at the time Solomon King was made and she appears in the film. She's at the very end of the movie in the airplane scene. And um, it's her Maserati that, Sal drives in the film oh, a lot wow. of the you know uh, the beautiful house that Sal is sort of seducing various women in and when the princess she gets shot um in the film that was their home but then they split up and reconnected and then she was able to be there and and support him and look after him the last seven years of his life when he was in really pretty pretty poor condition um, and he has a number of, of children and, and, um, so we're just hoping for him, for his, for his extended family that restoring Solomon King, um, shines a light on, on his incredible sort of contributions from the seventies. The you have, you have him running side by side with Rudy Ray Moore, right? Cause Dolomite comes out in either 74 or 75. And that one had everything that, that seems like he wanted. That had the commercial success all of a sudden i forget the numbers but it was something like a hundred thousand dollar budget and it made 10 million dollars the, the numbers are crazy for dolomite um so it's just interesting to think about those two kind of running side by side yeah we had uh when i was programming at the cinematech we were lucky to to have rudy ray moore appear for a screening of dolomite oh wow and we never paid for speakers to appear because like what are you going to pay Clint Eastwood to appear or George Clooney or Nicole Kidman or like, you know, um, but we did pay Rudy Ray more, you know, his office was like, yeah, Rudy, Rudy gets paid you got to pay him an honorarium. So I think we paid him 500 or $700 to, to appear. And it was worth every penny. He came in and he did that in his, his incredible Dolomite, persona live uh in incredibly x-rated uh, <laughs> the egyptian theater i think i might have even said beforehand you know if you're easily offended you shouldn't be here you shouldn't be should be watching dolomite and you certainly shouldn't listen to this q a with rudy ray more 
but he is fan. He is fantastic. Uh, even the poetry he has in that movie is entertaining. I can't imagine what he'd be like in person. But um, so, um, <clears throat> do y'all have? Can you speak at all to what's coming up next? Uh, I don't know how much how close you are to the best with some of this stuff. But um, are you able to speak at all about what we can expect from Def Crocodile? Uh, we have, as I said, the, the sort of semi-sequel to Delta wow. Space Mission from the same directing team of Kalim Kazan and Mercha Toya. This is another incredible sort of freakadelic Romanian animated sci-fi film from the mid-80s. Um, at, uh, at least three or four more, more countries. Yes, yes. <laughs> Uh, we have an ex another uh, extremely rare Finnish genre film, okay. uh, which has not been seen in many years and is, and is, I would say, loosely in the Unknown Man of Shandigore kind of uh, vein that I think people are really going to love. Um, we are releasing an amazing um, 1960s Japanese movie, an incredibly sort of surreal, sleazy film noir that is an amazing, amazing film that is, is a kind of direct connection. It's a companion piece to one of the best known Japanese movies of the late 1960s. Um, we're working on a number of other um rare Eastern European genre films um, that have not, there have never been released here on Blu-ray to our knowledge. Um, we got a bunch of stuff. Is it, is it a German animated film I've not given a hope on yet. There's a great... You were talking about how hard it is and how long it takes. This, this one's... This one's been one on my list, and I'm like, I want to do this film. <laughs> what's the thing that's stopping you, Craig? Is it finding the elements, or where, like, what's the hard part about that one? You know, what's interesting is that a lot of these these older obscure films, uh, a lot of times they're owned by companies that you know they've moved on. They're like, this is 40 years ago. They don't care. They're like, you know, so we're like they're busy doing other things. So, you know, you send them an email and maybe four months later, you, you get an email back and it's like just back and forth and back and forth. And there's uh, just years go by and you're like, <laughs> um, yeah. And it, it's just, it, I'm, I'm still hopeful that that one will, will get done. It's just going to take some time. <laughs> yeah, no, there's, there's literally four or five films that are now the you know the clock is is now into years is, you know it's, it's passed from months into to year and then into years multiple and every couple of months you know I will send a little nudge and say hey remember we were talking five or six months ago and I never heard back yeah we're still really interested and and sometimes it shakes things loose and and. God knows why, but suddenly the stars will align and they're like, oh yeah, okay, we'll, we'll, I think most of the time it's because they're just tired of getting pestering emails from me and Craig. They're like, who are these crazy guys in LA? And if we just license this movie to them, then we'll then go away. Some, some, some people would ask, you know, is this how you decide or, 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 you know, use Kickstarter to fund these projects? And, and unfortunately you can't 
do it that way. Um, you need to sign a license before you can decide you're doing anything. Oh, yeah. You can't really have a Kickstarter and say, oh, well, if you raise 10 grand, we're going to do this. So it's like, well, no, you have to have already committed to it. Because, <laughs> um, yeah, that would make life, that would make things so much easier. Be like, oh, we're going to do a Kickstarter. You know, if it raises 15 grand, then we're like, great, that pays for the scanning and, you know, we're off to the races. Um, but the people licensing it to you, don't, they're like, no, that, that doesn't work that way. <laughs> it's well, a oh, go ahead. Uh, just hearing y'all talk, I, it feels like, you know, if I were to look ahead for, I don't know how far y'all think, five to 10 years, um, uh, and, and what Dev Crowd kind of grows into, I guess, as you start getting into the dozens of releases. And, and you know, it. do you have a vision for that in terms of, are you going to start getting into, uh, you know, uh, lesser known films from well-known directors that may have been lost, or are you going to get into, kind of continue to push these voices of underappreciated artists that have been lost through time? Or do you have any sense of like, you know, if you, if you get to, now that you're getting to run your dream project and run it the way you want to, do you have any sense of what that identity is going to be as you continue to grow and expand? Well, the, the, the vision I have is I'm going to need an, a, another big bookshelf in the garage to hold more Blu-rays. Uh -huh. I, I, was, I was just telling Zach that I spent a good part of the weekend having to build new shelf space. And then we, we found a big mid-century shelving unit that's incredibly heavy at the flea market today because the shelf space we built wasn't quite big enough for all the Blu-rays and DVDs. And I was looking at between, you know, Deaf Crocodile and and Sinalicious and Arbalos. So Craig and I have actually been involved with restoring and releasing quite a few films on on physical media. And and that's not even all the films. I mean, we we distribute theatrically and and for digital streaming and educational these wonderful films from India and Southeast Asia. Um, uh, films by Achal Mishra. We actually. We just learned, it's amazing, uh, the Museum of Modern Art in New York is doing an incredible film series mid-September through mid-October on emerging voices in independent Indian cinema. And okay. that is actually an area that we have been really interested in and doing a lot of work in trying to acquire these films and make them available. And they're yeah, going to speak. Three, three films from our catalog. Uh, in fact, the opening film is The Village House by Achal Mishra. His second feature, uh, Dewey, and then Pushpendra Singh's The Shepherdess and the Seven Songs. We haven't given up on the idea of, of eventually releasing those on Blu-ray and physical media. We're hoping that, that there will be enough of a groundswell and people who discover how great these films are that we could put them out on Blu-ray and they would sell well enough to, to um, justify the cost. Cause you know, you, you do, you, you have to have enough people who are interested in that particular title and owning it on physical media. Cause otherwise if only 50 or hundred or 150 people buy that Blu-ray, then you've lost quite a bit of money. I see. Mm -hmm. So we're very fortunate that so far with all of our releases, they've done quite well. And, and both Ilya Muramets and Sampo sold out on the yeah, limited. I really, hope, I really hope this, this, this uh, series at MoMA sheds a, a spotlight on Indian independent cinema or just South Asian 
cinema because uh, I mean it yeah it's it's it helps us because we've we've been you know trying to shine the spotlight on it ourselves yeah. um, but you know MoMA might have a bit, bit bigger reach than we do so because uh, these films are amazing they're just amazing um, the the hard part is getting people to to know that they exist because they're absolutely amazing films have you have you both seen RRR which is on yes Netflix? yes it's fantastic it's just utterly insane and wonderful chris have you seen it you know that movie's like yeah that movie's like three hours long i watched it on july 4th i came home and got my girlfriend and said we need to watch this again because she hadn't seen it yet and i was like i'll spend six hours watching this movie today yeah no it it, it is pretty amazing and i have to say it's been one of the most it was a huge hit over in india and now it's it's broken out here in a way that that i don't i can't remember any recent um indian films having broken out um and it's fan, it's fantastic i can't remember what the outlet was but i was very happy to see that because that was so popular someone put out a list of like not, you know, there's amazing Indian cinema yeah. that's nothing like that film. Here's 10 you should see. Um, and and I think it was, it, I think Shepherdist, Shepherdist and or Village House were on that list. Um, oh, good. So it's, it's it, yeah, hopefully like people will realize, you know, because we, we, we discussed this when we formed the company that we wanted to shine a spotlight on independent Indian cinema. It was a, it was a passion of Dennis's. Um, and, but we knew it was not going to be easy because there's a preconceived idea in America of what an Indian film is. Right. Um, and it's not art house independent cinema. It's big bombastic musical numbers and, and crazy a action films. And we're like, yeah, they're, they have those, but They've got this other whole, you know, beautiful, you know, art house cinema um, as well. Like you should give it a shot. It's really worth your time. There's a, there's an organization here in Austin that if y'all are interested, I might connect you to. They've been, they've been had a similar mission for at least 10 years now. So they do film festivals here in Austin that are around independent produced Indian films um, that are produced outside of the Bollywood system. Um, and I know some of the, the, the creators of that festival, I might be able to connect y'all if you don't already know them. Oh, that, that we may have been in touch already. I mean, there are wonderful Indian film festivals in almost all of the sort of, you know, major uh, urban centers in, in the U.S. Um, that are making a, a lot of these non-mainstream films yeah. and pieces available and in some cases able to bring in the filmmakers. And um, so we played a number of our films with them and, and they're really wonderful in... Good. And showing people that there there is a huge range of Indian cinema. I mean, the one of my dream projects, if I had unlimited funds, would be to to restore a number of the the classic Bollywood films from the late '50s, '60s, and early '70s. And we've tried, and it's really, really difficult. Not only finding the rights, but elements um and, and there are some people overseas in india who who have really been ringing the alarm bells 
for years, decades now about preservation issues over there. But it's it's really, really difficult. We have not given up hope, but um, this is this is this is a really long game we're playing in terms of 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 trying to to restore and re-release some of these amazing Indian films from the 50s and 60s. There's a, uh, is it Saul Khan? There's a guy from the, or Raj Kapoor, I'm sorry, Raj Kapoor, some of his movies. I don't know if that's who you're thinking about, but some of these ones were massive hits back in the kind of 50s, right? And then and then they're not really spoken about as much anymore. Um, but they, uh, yeah, I, I just- well, recently- Dev, Dev Anand just passed away recently, a few months ago, and he was one of the best known stars of the, the classic era of Bollywood filmmaking. Okay. Starting in the late fifties and sixties, um, there are just so many amazing films and filmmakers from that period. Um, and uh, again, we're, we're very fortunate that we're able to bring some of the new independent Indian films, and and these are that I have to say that is one of the good things about releasing new and contemporary films is you, you you generally don't have to spend five years looking for elements oh, or many many months restoring the films the producers will have a beautiful 4k pro res and the audio elements and subtitles and all those things because they want the film to get out there and be seen and because they've usually dealt with festivals that require all those elements as well so in terms of getting the deliverables it's so much easier dealing with a contemporary film than it is trying to restore and re-release a film that has not been available for 30, 40, 50 years or more, so. Uh, I imagine that distribution and, and just actually getting these films in the hands of people is a big part of that. Is that part of the reason why you decided to kind of join with OCN? Was it just they have that kind of distribution engine that's cranking along and, and, and you know, the, the marketing tools behind it? Was that, was that a big reason for that? Yeah, right. a, combination of, a combination of things is, is putting out a Blu-ray. Um, there's a lot of upfront costs um, mm-hmm. and they can handle that because they're at scale um, better than we could on our own. Um, we're also, you know, a lot of the, especially the, the restoration releases are a lot of our stuff is kind of genre or genre adjacent and they have a built-in audience that's craving that already so it just kind of made sense is they they ease the entry into blu-ray releasing and they have you know a rabid film fan base that's wants the product that we're putting out so it was kind of a somewhat of a no-brainer and has it generally been a good partnership i mean a lot of your stuff is selling out so i imagine so so far so good yeah (laughs) that's good um, I have to apologize. I just double checked. The actor, the Indian actor I meant to, to reference was Dilip Kumar, who was one of the great stars. Devin Ond was also one of the, the amazing stars who later, he was a filmmaker as well. But Dilip Kumar passed away about a year ago. He was okay. one of the greatest performers of that classic age of Bollywood cinema. So Okay. okay. No problem. Well, um, look, I, I, I wanted people to hear y'all's passion uh, and hear from you yourselves. I know uh, 
it, it's natural. So I, I know all I had to do was turn the cameras on and or the mics on, I guess you should say, since it's not a video podcast, but um, and just get y'all talking. Um, I, I know, uh, Craig, you mentioned that, you know, we, we I think we're close to, to when you have to go. So are there any other questions, Zach, you have? I mean, I this time has been amazing for me, as always. Um, the passion came through. I, I love the fact that people get to hear this and get to hear, you know, what y'all are trying to accomplish. Um, Zach, anything else from you? Uh, no, just uh, thank you guys for giving us the opportunity to come back and discuss this stuff. It's been a blast. I hope you keep enjoying the the blu-ray releases uh you know and and i i would like to give a shout out to justin la liberty who's our uh partner in crime at ocn vinegar syndrome uh he has been a really great collaborator um uh as well as um anu rangachar with gratitude films who we've released all of our indian and southeast asian yeah. content with and then um oliver lotsky um and uh her colleague victoria belopolsky um uh, at seagull films that we've collaborated on the release of um, Ilya muramets and sampo and we'll be working with on several upcoming releases as well so so while it looks like it's just the two of us in fact there's a lot of other people who contribute tony stella did the fabulous artwork for for uh, Shandigore, the Sharam Mokri set, Ilya Muromets, and Sampo that is just breathtakingly beautiful. So there's so many people. Uh, Tyler Fagerstrom, who was our, our colorist, who's now working on Solomon King, um, that contribute to these. And then most of all, it's the filmmakers. I mean, we're here just to shine a light on the work that these filmmakers had had done. Um, we we are not, you know, the the creative engine behind these. These were, you know, these are beautiful films that for a multitude of reasons may have gone unseen. We're just trying to bring them back to a form closest to what we, we hope the filmmaker would have wanted um, and, yeah, uh, and it, make them available to a, a wider audience. Yeah. Pushko isn't here, but I'm hoping that he would be happy with the Blu-ray releases of Ilya Muromets and, and Sampo. To some degree, this is, is a selfish endeavor. It's these films we like that we want to see looking as good as possible because we want, personally, we want to go into a theater and see them. Um, and then I want to be able to just go in my closet here and pull down the disc and watch it whenever I want. Right. And so if we don't do it, we can't do that. <laughs> yeah, that's, I, you know, 20 years ago, I organized a touring retrospective of Alexander Patushka's films with, with my, my friend and our colleague, Oliver Lotsky at, Seagull Films in New York. And the two titles we were not able to include for technical reasons were Ilya Muromets and Sampo. Ah. And so that little list in the back of my mind, I was always like, gee, you know, we, I gotta, I gotta correct. I gotta close that circle someday. And we're, and we're hoping uh, we are making plans can't announce anything yet, but to have more uh, Patushka gems coming out through Deaf Crocodile in the future. I mean, it, I, I almost just want to end there. I just have to say, if, if, for anybody that doesn't know and hasn't seen these films yet, um, I, I hope you're okay with me saying this, but if you think about what Ray Harryhausen was doing when he was in the prime of his career, it's very analogous to what Patushka is doing. Although I think Patushka might even be more creative with staging and framing and, and perspective, almost like 
using the the perspective that you can do with film to create some some size differences and stuff because it's just I, I was blown away by the effects that were inside Ilya Mudimitz, um and what he was able to do on a, on a fully, you know, no CGI, right? So it's all, it's all practical effects. That, that is very kind. I, I have to say, I, I knew Ray Harryhausen. I got the, the wonderful opportunity to interview him a number of times. And he was one of the, the sweetest, most wonderful filmmakers I've ever seen. I, I think he actually should have taken a co-directing credit on most of the films or in fact all of the films that he worked on because he he essentially created directed all of the stop motion all of those those incredible sequences for the yeah. films i i you know he took the the you know visual effects and i think he may have had a producing credit on some of the later ones i when i watch those films i really consider harry hausen to be the the at the very least the co-creator if not in some cases the main creative so I, I dearly love Ray. I love the work of Patushko, Mario Bava. I, I think um, they were all coming from that same wellspring of, of sort of wonderful fantasy and visual effects filmmaking. Awesome. What a great note to end it on. Thank you all so much for your time. Thank and you. um, what, what, is the, what is the Neil Simon song you quoted early on? Same time next year. I hope, that, I hope that's true. Well, <laughs> They, all right. Thanks very much, John. All, right. all right. Talk to you soon. All right. Bye-bye.